with this project more than any other I've had in my career. From minute one, I have felt a level of support and mutual agreement of what the show is. Yeah, I mean, little notes, like change this joke, or can we like, does this track better? Or is there a better way to do this emotional moment? But it's never at all feeling like it is getting in the way of the thing. Welcome friends to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. All right, here we are. We are rolling in the, I don't know, we call this Brentwood, Santa Monica. We're somewhere right on the border. Santa Monica region. Yeah, ish. West side. West, very much the west side, which is the perfect location for this podcast because this was really uh, about a relationship that was born on the west side, not too far from here. I'm sitting uh, to my left, Cardell Laverson the EVP of drama from NBC. Hi. And to my right, Austin Winsberg. That's me. The creator of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. And the reason this show and this episode is uh, is so near and dear to all of us is because three of us actually went to high school together. Yes. In fact, Noah drove me carpool. He picked me up and took me to school. Did he? He did. For like a year? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Until I could drive, until I had my license and could park so and guys, drive myself. So you guys also lived close to each other. Also yeah. this. We did. We yeah. did indeed. Yeah. So Austin, you're older. Cara, you're younger. I'm right I don't want you to middle. say that. Well, to, <laughs> to establish the why it was only one year that I... Do you remember any conversations that you guys had in carpool? I remember many conversations. So... <laughs> well, <Let's> taking a <laughs> turn. I remember a lot of conversations about boys. I mean... It was I was a yeah. sophomore, so fair enough. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. not as many conversations about girls on my on my <laughs> end. But Cara had a lot of questions about various uh, questions. I don't know, boys' comments. I don't know, concerns fair. maybe. I don't fair. know. I also remember probably probably most famously was the time we were driving down the four hundred five, windows down, blaring something awesome. I'm sure. Yeah. And I know where this is going. <laughs> in the next lane over to us were uh, John and Ann O'Brien, and John threw a gum. And it went right past my face and landed in Carr's hair. It did. He threw it out his window out Come of his he was car. Yes. yes. Oh, that's at like terrible. 65 miles an hour. And that's I had amazing. To <laughs> cut it out. Cut your hair out. Yeah. Wow. Thanks, I'm sure John he O'Brien. didn't. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure he didn't do it thinking he was actually going to hit. No. Right. Still. Yeah. I'm not over it. Don't blame you. <laughs> Where is he now? Let's go find him. <laughs> He is in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Okay. There you go. Next flight. Next flight. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, your hair looks beautiful. <laughs> Thanks very much. It grew back. <laughs> Thanks for your concern. <laughs> um, but yes, we were neighbors. Austin, not a neighbor. Any memories of me from high school? or Tons of memories. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. You know, nothing with gum in the freeway. But, Brentwood uh, Theater Company. Okay. That's right. Hook the musical. You were not settled down. <laughs> Peter Pan, I believe, is what it's called. <laughs> I remember, Austin, though, you were pretty much a fully... Uh, Fully formed writer, yeah. comedy writer, actor, writer, Already playwright, under, director. Yeah. The only difference really were glasses. You might they have a different style. Yeah. I should have had these back then. <laughs> I've seen some of the styles I wore. <laughs> I started off kind of acting more, and then writing started to creep in towards the end of high school. And I can tell you the whole genesis of how that started if you're really interested. Well, nope. 
<laughs> no, but you know, you get up in front of assemblies. You're yes. full yeah. confident. I was, prefect. A, I was a prefect. A prefect. Yes. yes, exactly. I would yes. go up and try to entertain everybody. You make were, you were already like a performer, writer, extraordinaire. A multi-hyphenate. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Already in high so school. So basically what we're saying, if you're listening to this and you're in high school and you're not already doing that, you have no chance. That's right. You have to get like mediocre parts Start in the early. school plays, <laughs> yeah. become part of student council and have half the school not like you. It's great. <laughs> but here we are uh, only 10 years later <laughs> after high school. Appreciate that. Yeah, you got it. My gift to you. Those sort of 20, what is it really? It doesn't matter. 20, 20 something. A <laughs> couple more than 10. Yeah. Uh, all together. And I think it's really awesome to be here with you both today to talk about a show that is, um, as the title indicates, truly extraordinary. Agree. Thank you, No. You got it. Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. It is a brand new show. Uh, by the time this comes out, it will be not as brand new, but still new. And it's amazing. It and I, I mean that truly, not just because we're old friends and whatnot, but I there's other shows that might make you laugh. There's shows that might make you cry, and there's shows that might make you want to sing. But this is truly the only one that does all three. And maybe the only one that I can even remember. I mean, is there any other sort of... I guess Glee, Glee? in some respects, could be kind of a comp. Um, They used existing songs on that show, too, not really the way we do. Uh, But I guess that show had elements of... I don't know if it was really a comedy, but that show had some comedic stuff in it and elements of drama, that too. But we, we approached it in a completely different way than Glee did. Very much so, um, but still with incredible music performances. And that's where the obvious comparison is made. Um, but this show um, is quite different. And why don't we get into the show? We start every episode here with the light bulb. And the light bulb I know came from you, Austin, because as we learned at the Oscars, the most personal is the most creative. And this show certainly hits that beat for you. That's true. Yeah, so uh, this idea originated, just to go back a little further, um, Cara and I have worked together on a few different projects over the years. Before Cara was at NBC, Cara was at Lionsgate, and we had worked on another musical TV show at Lionsgate where we had spent a lot of time talking about that idea together and various versions of that script uh, that didn't end up going. Uh, But we had a bit of a shorthand just from our understanding of that musical show and what we wanted that to be. And then... After that, so I had, in the last 10 years, I had gotten more into musicals in some ways in my writing. Uh, I had a musical on Broadway. I called First Date. Uh, It was really good. I did the live Sound of Music for NBC, which was the first live show, first live musical show. I had sold three or four other musical projects along the way. And so I had kind of been in this space for a while where where I wanted to do a show that had comedy and music and that kind of stuff in it. And then uh, a tragedy happened in my family. In 2011, my father died of a very rare neurological disease called progressive supranuclear palsy. And before before that, my dad was a very healthy, vibrant, dynamic, outgoing 67-year-old man. And then over the course of a year, he just lost all of his abilities. He lost his ability to speak. He lost his ability to walk. Um, but towards the end for the last six, eight months he was alive. He could only communicate with one hand and blinking. And we didn't know during that time how much he was processing, if he was processing. We knew that he was there and he would laugh at the right moments and he would kind of respond some ways and sometimes to what was going on, but other times he wouldn't. And I always wanted to know what was going on in my dad's head during that time. It was kind of like being trapped in his own body. He was a prisoner. And during that time, I was also becoming a father while losing my dad. And it was just a very charged, emotional, dramatic time in my family's life. And I knew at some point I wanted to write something about it. And at some point, Cara might have even encouraged me to write something about it. And 
at one point, so Cara got this job at NBC and she'd been there a little while. And I remember we went to get to dinner together in Brentwood and I was talking about the next, every year there's a de- pilot development cycle and I usually sell like two or three projects every year. And we were, but I knew that I wanted to work with Cara on something. And we had a really great time working at Lionsgate together. We had a very shared understanding. She gets me and what I'm trying, always trying to do. And so we were at that dinner and I said, I think I want to write something about my dad and I, and I want to write about that six months or that year that my dad was dying and I was becoming a dad at that time. And I said, you know, I just have this idea. What if the way that my dad saw life during that last six months that he was alive was through big musical numbers? And there was something about that to me that instead of all of the dad stuff feeling really down and depressing and and too bleak, that there was something kind of hopeful about that mm-hmm. and that made me smile. And I, I felt a little bit of joy in something that was a very sad idea. And Kara liked that idea and said to me, I, I, I like that, but I'm worried that if it's just the dad, it's going to feel too small. And it's going to feel- And a little sad. And a little too sad. Yeah. So is there a way that you can take that kind of conceit and blow that up a little bit? And so I went back home and started thinking about it some more and said, well, what if instead of it just the dad seeing the world that way, what if our lead character was somehow able to see people's inner thoughts and feelings through song? And, And that also that would be one way that they would be able to communicate with their father during the time that the dad was dying. And so that was really the light bulb. So the light bulb started as wanting to write something personal based on that time in my life. I added the musical element. Cara challenged me to make it bigger than just that. And that was the start. So I work with these people, Eric and Kim Tannenbaum, who are amazing producers. And and we started talking just about the idea some more. And then, uh, so I kind of had this whole pitch written out. And then they said, do you want to go pitch it to Paul Feig? to see if he'd want to be involved. And so I, I'm a huge fan of Paul Feig's work, and I said that would be amazing. Uh, we all have a deal at the same place at Lionsgate. And so we went in and pitched it to Paul Feig, and he said, uh, I like the show, and I'll do it with you if you make the main character a woman instead of a man. And Paul Feig, a lot of what he does is all very female-driven. And so I thought about it for five minutes, and I realized that all of the core dynamics of the show, nothing actually shifted. All the characters were still the same if you just changed a few genders of a few people here and there. And on top of that, it had another element too, which is I wanted the lead character to be a programmer in San Francisco. And I chose that profession because I wanted to be somebody who had didn't really interact with the world very much. Saw the world very much in black and white, hid behind their computer. It was somebody who actually needed to get this power to show that they could expand beyond themselves and it forced them to interact with other people and to understand feelings more in a world where they live in a very binary black and white terms. And when I thought about it as a woman and when I started doing research on women in Silicon Valley and what that's like, it actually stacked the deck more against the lead. That it's very hard being a woman programmer in that world. And it just created other layers of conflict and rootability. And so that was the one extra little piece. And then I went in and pitched it to Cara. And you changed it. So you changed it from Austin to Zoe, from A to Z. Correct. Yeah. From A to Z. Although nice. it's still, the character is still Austin. It's just a female character. I feel like Austin has kind of like morphed into a few different characters. It's in the, true. Like you are, Max is. Yeah, you're definitely Max. David also. somewhat, yes. the brother. Austin is all the characters in Zoe <laughs> in some way or another. That's for sure true. But I will say this. So we went in and I pitched it to Cara. All I wanted to do was to do the show with Cara. It did come out of our dinner together. It's a true story. Um, and I pitched it to the room and everybody applauded afterwards. And that It was, was an incredible pitch. It was one of, I mean, Austin's an incredible pitcher in general. I've heard him pitch multiple times. But this one was really special. I mean, it was like the, just like the show, tears, 
laughing. Like you could see the layers, the emotion. You fell in love with the character. It was like a unanimous. Everyone on my side of the table was like, we have to have this. Sold. And luckily it was your first pitch. Were we first? Hopefully it was uh, the only one that mattered. He sold it to multiple networks, in fairness. It was a competitive situation. So even though, which is an interesting thing that happened. So even though it's like something that maybe came out of a conversation that we had that helped grow the idea, like that doesn't mean that it's a free market. Everybody wanted in on the good idea. So we had to... We had to really um, come in strong because ABC also really wanted it, and they were prepared to back up the truck too. You didn't have so dibs. we were in like a compet. We didn't have dibs. We were. She we had, had dibs. We had. Yeah, but there are other people involved, and you still have to. This, this you know. is the problem, is because once you get studios and producers and right. other people involved, everybody has an opinion yes. about where things should go, and once money starts becoming real and becomes, it becomes more of a business conversation. Yeah. Uh, my loyalty is and always has been to Cara, especially since it really, I mean, we had had a couple other ideas that we'd been floating around that we wanted to do together, but like, I remember our cutting edge idea. And- uh, I'm, still, I'm still into that. We'll talk about okay. it. Okay. <laughs> we love the movie Cutting Edge. It's fine, don't worry about it. Uh, it's gotta be an Olympic year coming up soon, right? It's well, we're summer now, Olympics, it's upon us. But winter, I think we gotta wait a couple more years. Yes. Right. We can by, by the time you develop, it will be here. Correct. That's true. Yeah. So I always wanted to go with Cara and with NBC also because I've had so many development experiences at so many other networks and having already gone through a version of that process with Cara before, we it's just a different kind of process yeah. than I've ever had with anybody else. Yeah. All right, but okay, to that point, you alluded to it, Lionsgate's involved is involved. The Tannenbaum yeah. Yep. Universal Music, I know, is yep. involved. Correct. You brought a big director, Richard Shepard, on board. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people here. There were. And I think for anyone listening to this who might be an aspiring writer or somebody who has aspirations to work with an old friend yeah. just having that dinner just having that relationship sounds like it was about 10 percent of what it needed to be i mean well it was it was the kernel of the thing at the time yeah. and what i've learned from all these different pitches over the years and i don't know how much this changes every year but people like to hear a package they want to know that when you go in with the show the more that you can kind of stack yeah. the deck on your side the more people that say, oh, no, this is a good idea, we like it, the more it gets other people to believe it's a good idea. Yeah. So the way that we tried to stack the deck with Zoe's was we having Paul Feig involved initially, um, and the Tannenbaums were always going to be my partners on it, and getting Universal Music Group involved because we knew that there would be tons of music in the show. And we didn't want anybody to be fearful that we wouldn't be able to get the rights to the songs. I remember in the pitch, I, I pitched a lot of songs as songs that characters would sing, in the pitch as part of their story and their narrative. Yeah. So I didn't want there to be any doubt that we wouldn't be able to achieve that. So there was kind of different elements were brought in by design so that we could go in kind of riding deep and riding strong. Like, these are all the people who are already involved, guys. Do you want to be on this train with us or not? Right. With the show that ambitious, like the package actually is really valuable and necessary because the first thing you think is like, is this really something that could be executed at this level? Um, and the show he was pitching really did require a certain kind of director, musical partners, like strong producers, plus somebody that had a really clear vision, which Austin did, which was very evident in the pitch. So in that case, like the package is necessary. You hear that big of an idea and you're like, how? And they really delivered it. And I do remember too, like Kara uh, is friends with my former agent, who's not my agent anymore because of the writers striking against agents. It's not striking writers, firing agents. And I remember he said to me before that he had talked to Kara and she was like, what if I don't like it? What if after our dinner- By the way, that's real. Like we are good friends. We go back years, we work together. I, it came from our dinner. What if he comes in and I'm like, oh, 
Like, I don't want to buy that. I mean, this is... Yeah, but, like... But it was undeniable. We, don't worry. No, but we've also, we've also both, I imagine, I'm sure you've had this too, Noah, like, people that you've known over the years where certain business things don't... Lost friendships over work stuff and all that. Yeah. And I always have the attitude that there's always another idea. There's always another thing. If it's not this thing, hopefully it'll be the next thing. Like, I would never... Hold that against you. Oh, I remember that. You said that for everyone to hear. You're buying my next. He's on the record, ladies and gentlemen. How dare you? Yes. Okay, so you, you said though, Kara, this project required this level it did. of package. It did. But wouldn't you argue that most projects that come in Actually, at least come not in? Not always. I mean, I think honestly, like you hope that the writer, um, you know, if they're a more green or a younger writer and they have a really big idea, sometimes you wonder, you know, are they gonna be able to execute this long-term or do they have the experience, you know, the historical knowledge to like pull something like this off. But honestly, like we buy things from, you know, writers all the time where it's just a writer, no producers. I mean, they often have a studio attached to it, but not like a director and a musical production company. I mean, it doesn't have to have a million pieces but in this case because the show was so ambitious it felt like it gave everyone a sense of security that it could be done sure. and i've just learned clearly it's gotten you know so it hasn't always worked out for me but i've always felt the more the better package i can come into the room with the more it just feels viable mm -hmm. so i don't know if there's a psychology behind that or not and maybe that's my own thing of feeling like it would be really great if we had a star or a director or someone else attached just one other one or two other people to confirm that this is something that feels worth pursuing well and you want to be bulletproof and having sat in in you know the producing chair certainly sat in the executive chair for many years yeah. you're going to be asked that question 93 times going up the flagpole it's not always going to be a competitive situation where you yeah. have to kind of put yourself out there and it's very easy to say no it's very hard to say yes right and I, so i always like to either, you know, I don't know what undeniable means because everybody has a different subjective opinion about it, but I at least like to put best foot forward. Yeah. And so I'm always trying to think Smart. what's our best foot forward before we go out with this thing. Right. And you alluded to it. You've sold many projects over the years and they haven't all gone to series. <laughs> I would say the, that is an un <laughs> the understatement of the podcast. Yes. Okay. But don't be modest because like one of your first things when you were very early thing. on in your career the first got thing. picked up and went to series, which is very rare. Yes. Yeah, so the first pilot I ever pitched and sold went to series for two years and I went from being a story editor which is a low level writer on a sitcom to show running at like 26 or 27 years old so very impressive and yes. then the next 20 pilots <laughs> or whatever it was well okay so do you think there's a 26 year old out there as a story editor possibly on your show who could replicate that and I well I don't know how uh, executives perceive that now and then you know do they need to bring in a seasoned showrunner to work with that younger writer for whatever reason, they let me do it. And I did have a seasoned person, both seasons of the show kind of come in with me, even though I was kind of at the helm of it. But it was also very much trial by fire. And I was very young when it happened. The show was called Jake in Progress. It was on ABC. Um, and it definitely was, you know, it was challenging every step of the way. And I think there were a lot of things that I wasn't quite prepared for. Yeah, because uh, you were 26. Right. Yeah. Right. But I'm sure at the time you didn't think that you weren't going to be ready. Well, uh, maybe some inspiration. They just, you know, ABC threw a huge curveball at me. I sold one show. We made that one pilot. And then a, the regime changed at ABC and a new president took over. And the original concept, I'll make this really fast. The original concept of Jake and Progress was a romantic comedy version of 24, where each season was one big day in the life of this couple. And 24 had only existed for a year or two at the time. And they hadn't done any real time like comedies before like that. 
And uh, then the new president came over and said, I'm picking up the show, but I want to lose the girl and I want to lose the 24 concept. <laughs> and literally, like, the pilot ended with them going to start their date that was going to play out over the course of this one night, like, after hours. And I had to figure out on the fly. So not only was I having my own show at 26 or 27, but I had to then figure out how to reconstitute the show because he still wanted to keep the pilot. So it was a very challenging figuring it all, and this is what I mean, like in terms of working with Kara versus I've seen every iteration of every project I've ever done. You know, it's so rare that the thing that you sell or the thing that you write becomes the thing that they actually end up making. I, I can't tell you how many times I've sold projects that because of notes and network changes and different desires and mandates changing along the way, the thing that I end up writing at the end of the day doesn't resemble the thing that everybody got excited about in the first place. And you're not even feeling good about the work by the end of it. Yeah. And it just becomes this sort of like homogenized, watered down version of the thing that initially got everybody excited. Sure. So, well, so um, there've been many times, but then there's been other times over the years where I feel like my, can I swear on your podcast? You can swear away. Where yeah, my, like a sailor. Where my shitty pilot is at least as good as the other shitty pilots they made that year. So then it just becomes a question of just luck and timing and politics and other stuff too. I can tell you that the year before Zoe's, I had a pilot go out about a family who's the, who's, uh, a family member had died. And one of the notes I got from the network was, when you're describing the dad's death, can you make the death sound funnier? It was, in fairness, it was a comedy. It was. <laughs> so like, what is it? You have to slip on a banana And it was not before? for me. But <laughs> that was, was not Cara. But it was a comedy. This is real. So he has a legitimate but deep-seated fear that the process is going to make the show bad, right? So making a pilot and then a series with a good friend of yours in the jobs that we're in is really challenging because you want to protect their creative vision but we also on the network side have a job to do a we're answering to a lot of masters so just finding a way to make sure that we were communicating and that we were giving austin the freedom to make the show that he really wanted to make but still making it a show that was like going to work for nbc and be commercial enough and be um you know broad enough that it was sort of you know, accessible to our audience was sort of the challenge of doing this together. But I think like our shorthand, our history, our relationship made that a pretty painless, relatively speaking, process. I can speak rapturously about Cara now or later. What would you prefer? <laughs> you know, both. Okay, so truly, and it's not just because she's sitting next to me, but she's already shaking her head. Uh, but with this project, more than any other I've had in my career, from minute one, I have felt a level of support and mutual agreement of what the show is, not only with Kara, but also everybody in her circle. Um, a, yeah, I mean, little notes, like change this joke, or can we, like, does this track better, or is there a better way to do this emotional moment? But it's never at all feeling like it is getting in the way of the thing. And there have been so many times where it's like, I thought we were doing this thing over here on the left and now it's this thing over here on the right. I've always felt from minute one, I've never had the kind of support, never had the kind of belief in a project and never had people allow me realize the vision that I set out to make from minute one and it's all because of Cara. Sounds like you have them right where you want them. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, Austin is executing this show at such a level that I don't think anybody would interfere. I mean, truly, I do think, yes, like we could take some credit for because I think something we do really well at NBC is, you know, to stay true to the vision. And if we really think we can't do it for our air, we'll say like we love it as fans, but we can't do that for us. So we want you to do it somewhere else where it can be what you want it to be. But in this case, we were certain this was something that we should be doing. And he was delivering material 
in the scripts and in the cuts every week that was blowing people away. It was exceeding expectations at every level. So there was, I didn't have to do a whole like defending the creative vision of the show. People were just like, this is amazing and special and unique and well done. And I mean, it was the, the rapturous compliments came from our side too to him. It really, so it's not, it doesn't always happen, but this is a great example of the process working well. Whereas like we fell in love with the original idea. He executed it at an A plus level, the whole process. And the response internally was just confidence and enthusiasm and support. And it just worked, you know, as, as well as it can work in a creative, creative to network process. But, but I think those things as special as that is, I don't, I, I do think it's, I don't know where the chicken and the egg of that is, but I also think it's because of their support that I was able to do the thing right. that I was able to right. do. Cause there've been so many times. And I, again, I have a lot of pilots and a lot of shows I've worked on too, where I've seen the reverse, where I've seen every step of the way, you feel like the wind is against you. Yeah. And when the wind is on your back or helping pushing you, whatever that expression is, pushing you up the hill, yeah. it makes a huge difference. So it, it enables me to take bigger risks. It enables me to say, no, this is what we're doing. And for them to say, okay, like that's huge. So I appreciate and, and I appreciate that she feels and that I feel like I am getting that love and support from them. But I also feel like because it comes from them, it does that's allow fair. me to do what I do. How many pilots do you buy per season approximately? So we hear from July to October about 300 pitches. From the 300 pitches, we buy, you know, 50 to 55 scripts from those uh, 50 to 55 scripts, we end up considering probably 15 of them closely. And then this year we picked up six pilots. So we're about to go shoot six pilots. And from that, we'll pick up whatever we need in terms of series for the schedule. Could be all of them, could be three of them. It just depends on what we need and how they come in. So that's three out of 350 or, or sometimes less. I mean, on the comedy side when I was there before, like there'd be like- That's just for drama, let me be clear. Yeah, I would go in and pitch a show to a network and, you know, they pick up 60 scripts out of 600 comedy pitches. So they pick up 10% of that and then they make 10% of that. So all those years where people like not in the industry, not like, what do you do? I'm like, well, I sell pilots. Well, what does that mean? I would get to like the, I'd get to the stack of 15, but I wouldn't get to the stack of six or eight. So it's just like the, it's such a thin needle to thread and it's a constantly moving target because the things that beca that start off as the mandates at the beginning of the season, when they start to see what shows are working, and Carl can speak to this better than me, but like the mandates shift. So the show that they're excited about in in uh, July. July doesn't mean it's the show they're excited about in December. It's true, it does happen. And that's why the wind shift typically, or is it a lack of trust with the producers or I think it's like any number internally? of things. It can be, yeah, it can be um, the schedule has changed, the landscape has changed. By the time the script come in, comes in, we were really excited about the idea when it was verbally pitched, but then in execution, it's maybe not exactly what we thought or didn't quite get there. So that's sort of the first layer. And then once you see the scripts and you go shoot the pilots, then a lot of things have to be executed at a very high level during the pilot process. Um, casting, locations, just the translation of the written word you know, to screen, like a lot of things can go wrong or be changed or the magic doesn't quite happen. In the case of Zoe, it was the script was already amazing. And then this team that he's been talking about um, you know, added an incredible cast and incredible choreographer and Mandy Moore. And suddenly the thing that was an idea that we could kind of picture because it's so big and ambitious became this 
thing you could see and it was executed at such a high level that it was, you know, really blew everybody away. But that doesn't always happen. Sometimes, you know, the final product comes in and you're like, huh. No, and I found that that people, executives, they don't fall more in love with things, right? And once they've fallen out of love, it's hard to turn that train around. So it almost sounds like, you know, people say, oh, you know, under promise and over deliver, but you kind of have to over promise and over deliver on that. That's yeah. definitely the better way to go. <laughs> and how do you, how do you over, like I get stuck in the script stage where it's like, you have to over promise on the script stage and then just getting from script to them even making the pilot is such a huge leap for people. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a very competitive landscape and the needs in terms of when we're looking at those scripts and what are we going to send to pilot. So we're really considering for series there's so many factors that go into that. You know, what holes are there going to be on our schedule? What shows are working or not working? You know, what's, you know, working on another network so we don't need that because we don't want to compete with that? Or, you know, is this a, an arena that seems like a good idea in script? And then when we think about what that would look like, you know, as series, it doesn't make sense anymore. There's so many things that can change. I have a question about that, if I may. Oh. Please. I don't want to take away from He's your He's like, actually, tell me more about how you... Yes. No, but is with streaming and everything now, yeah. and, and this crowded, scripted, scripted yeah. landscape, yeah. how much is there a push to stand out as a network TV show? Or is there a push in the other direction to be just more network? Because, yeah. like, how do you differentiate... Huge pressure to stand out. Um, and I think... You can't let the tail wag the dog completely on that front. I think we're very cognizant that, you know, there are so many choices and on average people are watching, you know, seven shows um, in a really committed way. So in order to become one of those seven shows, you have to capture them, you know, first time around so that they sample it and then you have to keep them. So in order to do that, it has to be something that feels like it can stand out. It feels fresh. It feels unique. It doesn't feel like the same old. It's way too competitive to be putting stuff out there that feels like something you've seen before. So this year's pilot season, I would say almost everything we picked up to pilot has a big high concept hook baked into it. It's a much bigger idea you know, than sort of things that we've done in the past that felt like a more traditional network show. We're trying to compete um, in a crowded landscape with streaming and cable and pay by doing things that feel like it's appointment television, like Zoe. Like we would put, that was also a mandate last year and we would put that squarely in that category. Like that, Zoe is exactly the type of show that we should be trying to make, something that really feels different and special and unique and noisy. So we're doing more of that and hopefully with success, like with Zoe. You're welcome. And I'll send you give a future in podcasting because that was actually going to be my next question. Look, you're stealing his thunder. <laughs> no, I actually saw your journal before. <laughs> you're so. totally stealing his question. No, but it's absolutely like I cheated true. after you after you yeah. high school. It's exactly, the same thing, right? Yeah. No, we never had plenty class. Probably, yeah. Right. Miss Creasy's unfortunately not here to you know confirm um, that. But did love her. She's right. my favorite English teacher of all everyone's, time. Everyone's me as well. Favorite. Billy Budd, everybody. I That's, think Miss Creasy might be why I'm like sitting in this chair right now. Wow. I would get, I would put some of that squarely in her lap. I think she had an effect on most every one of us that yeah. went through her class. She was our 11th grade English teacher yeah. to the listeners at home. Yeah. <laughs> and if you see a Billy Budd project on NBC yeah. next year, you'll know it's why. It's because of that. Should we do Billy Budd as a comedy? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Thought it was a Just, big idea. But okay, so broadcast strategy in the digital world. Yes. You're competing with places. Everyone. Well, and, <laughs> and everything. Yes. And places that play by a completely different set of rules. Correct. And that's hardly fair. But you're doing it, and yes. that's sort of the that's just that's the game. Deal with it. That's the game you're in. Yes. 
but you've done some unconventional things, like even with the launch of this show, where you yes. premiered the first episode and then you held it for yes. a few weeks, yep, and then came out with subsequent episodes. I yep. mean, case by case basis. I mean, how much? Yeah, I think right now we have to be creative in terms of how we're competing from, you know, what we're choosing in terms of, you know, ordering to series and then how we're launching it. Absolutely. So I just spoke a little bit about how we're making the decisions in terms of what, which I think right now is, you know, the big idea, the things that can stand out. And then we have to find creative ways to create urgency because the biggest issue for us is making that transition from, you know, linear ratings, people really evaluating a show's success based on, you know, people watching it that night or soon thereafter within three to seven days, right? And people are not watching TV on our schedule anymore. They're watching TV when they want to. So in order for us to create some urgency or some reason uh, for broadcast to still be appointment television as opposed to a streaming show where it's like, okay, well, you could check that out in six months from now and it's still sitting up there. It doesn't, you know, matter. For us, it does matter. Um, So I think it's both looking for creative ways like what we did with Zoe. So in that case, we sampled the show. We put it up as sort of a sneak premiere. And then that allowed us to put it out to like over 20 digital platforms because we knew that this show in particular, based on research, was going to skew younger and attract a more digital audience than we normally get in broadcast. So we wanted to get as many people under the tent as possible that were younger and more digital viewers in the hopes that we would then be able to get them excited and then bring them to watch the show linearly on NBC. Um, So that was, it was sort of an experiment in terms of exactly how we did it. And we've been really pleased with the results. We've had, you know, a great digital sampling from all kinds of platforms of people that don't necessarily even know the show is an NBC show where like the process is then to educate them that it is and bring them to the network to watch it. But we've had a huge sampling of the show of all ages. So for us, that's really a success story. Well, you mentioned that people watch seven shows at a time. Mm-hmm. So there's the feeling that you have to get rid of one to take on a new you do, one. Or one has to be finished or it, it has to bump something. It has to be as so exciting that it's undeniable. And you're like, I'd rather watch this than this. So that's the bar these days, which is hard. Is there any sense of how many episodes you have to be committed to to build that habit or say, okay, this is one of my top seven? That's interesting. I don't know if there's like actual research that dictates that. But I think for us, like once you have them past the first three, they they tend, it seems like they tend to stick around. Well, hopefully that's the case with this show. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How many are in the first season run? Twelve. Twelve. And even in that, I mean, how do you That's come another up with, strategy, too, yeah, is 12? doing the shorter orders. You know, so that has been in the last couple of years something it used to be in broadcast. Everything was 22, especially on the drama side. And I think now, you know, we're much more focused on what's right for the creative of the show and also what works best in the schedule. And so that has allowed us to do, you know, shows that are shorter orders. This Is Us is usually not 22. It's, you know, 18, 16. It's been a couple of different orders. Good Girls is a shorter order. Um, Zoe's is a shorter order. So we're finding that if it works better creatively and we can place it on the schedule in the shorter order, it can be something that works really well. It's also a, a very appealing for actors and writers. Some, yeah. Something that's a sh- doing 22 is very challenging. Oh, so we're doing a musical every eight days yeah. in the show. A full-blown musical. The, it's true. the logistics alone of getting the song rights 
re-recording the songs, doing all the dance choreographing yeah. rehearsals and executing all of that in such a short time. And I'm doing all of that while also being in charge of all, in charge of all the writing and everything as well. Uh, I don't know if we could do money more than that. The well, burden you- on what he's doing week to week is really incredible. I mean, they're doing a lot more technically and from a production standpoint than the average like eight day production show. Well, and you're writing the plot based on songs that you don't know that you're necessarily going to get or you have already gotten them. Well no, we advanced. usually start with the plot and then I have an idea of the kind of song that I need in that moment. And there's there's three ways that songs function on the show. They either function as uh, plot revealing, plot moving, uh, character revealing, or are they funny? And sometimes I hope that it's some version of two of those things. So I'll always know, like, at the end of Act One, I need a song about betrayal. Or I need a song where this person feels jealous, or this is a song where they're expressing love in some way. And then I'll sit in the writer's room, or on my own, and just go through, like, our iPods of Apple Music or whatever, and thinking of songs that could work for that. So fun. And so we have, like, a speaker in the room, and we'll just get up and dance and listen to songs. But I'm very, I, but I feel like the songs, and, like, the, some of the challenges the songs lyrically have to sort of make sense with too uh and that it's always that the song a song can never be there just for song's sake it always has to function as something in the plot and so that's a high bar that i've set for myself and then our music supervisor is jen ross who did empire and smash and some other shows and she is very very aware of what song rights are easy to get what song rights are harder to get so i'll have my top choice song uh, or maybe my top choice two songs. And uh, the first thing I'll do right when I'm literally in the room just writing it on a board is, can we get this U2 song? And she'll say to me, oh, U2's impossible. I'm just using this example. U2's impossible. Never, We'll never get U2. And then sometimes she'll be like, that song's really easy and that surprises me. And then other times she'll say to me, this song's really hard and it's a long shot, but if you want to go for it. And then I'll also get in my head sometimes like, I cannot do this story without this song. Mm-hmm. And so there have been five times over the course of the season where I actually had to write letters personally to Van Morrison, to Paul Simon, to Beastie Boys, to Destiny's Child. And in every single case, all season long, there was not one person, including all the songs that we went after, where we didn't get the song. He's convinced people to give him the rights to the music that have like never said yes before. Beastie Boys never says yes. I mean, these are very hard songs. Paul Simon is almost impossible to get. It's, it's incredible. Based on the strength of the personal connection that you have yeah, to I the mean, show? Yeah, or yes. I mean, so they always... You bought License to Ill when you were, you know... That's <laughs> correct. I was a big Paul's Boutique yeah, fan. Yeah. Uh, I'll do Paul Revere Classic. for you right now if you want. I'll sing it. Nope. But Tara has no interest in that. Uh, but... Yeah, based on the fact that I'll have to explain to them in what way is the song being used. They don't want to make it feel like we're making fun of their the song. And then, you know, kind of what's the spirit of the episode? What is it about? You know, I, oftentimes I'll have to give them like an outline description of, or sometimes they'll even uh, ask to see pages. And there are a few people where it's like once, so this, is, this isn't a thing that I've actually had to do with Kara that I've never had to do before on a show because I've had to say to the network, I'm going to give you guys sometimes at story stage and sometimes at outline stage because you have to send in different documents before you send in the scripts usually to the network where I'm going to need you guys to approve of the songs at the outline stage, sometimes at the story stage. And what that means, guys, is we're sticking with this. Like when I turn in a script to you, again, this is all back in my like development past. When I stick, when I bring send in a script to you, you can't be, throw out the story. And you can't be like, we hate Act 2 because it's predicated on the Destiny's Child song we got. And if, and if you fall behind. 
And no, but you actually need it because of the pipeline and the timeline. Because if you fall behind, because if suddenly they say, we don't want, we don't like that story, and we just spent three weeks getting this Destiny's Child song, right. and the show, shoots, the show shoots in a week and a half, and we have no song anymore, we're really in trouble. So another way where the network has been really behind me in the show is they've enabled us and they've said yes to things early on enough to keep the pipeline going. And so there have been a couple of times that have been nail bitery. Like we were waiting till the very last minute to get Moondance by Van Morrison in episode two. But I really felt like we needed that song. And it was literally like, if we don't hear today, we're going to have to move on because Mary Steenburgen, or I'm sorry, Peter Gallagher has to go into the recording booth tomorrow to record it. We have to choreograph it on Thursday and shoot it on Friday. It was that close sometimes. They, they could have fallen in love at a James Taylor concert though. They could have, and I like that you referenced that. Um, <laughs> but the other thing that that song needed was it needed to be a song that Zoe didn't know the meaning of. And with the meaning, she thought the meaning had to mean that dad wanted sex, when in actuality, he just wanted to tell it her. It was very so, specific. So it was a very specific need from that song, and that was Moondance, and all the song, other songs that I went after, like Afternoon Delight or something like that, it was too obviously about sex, not about love. So threading that needle was tricky. Well. If Maroon 5 gives you any problems. You know a guy? We <laughs> haven't tried to do a Maroon 5 song. It's funny because I've thought about it multiple times. Yeah. Also from also high school. Also a high school alumna. Yes. And I multiple feel like, high school alumna. Yes. Perhaps Mickey Season Madden. Two, perhaps. perhaps Mickey Madden got the part in Peter Pan that I wanted. Oh, and you're still bitter about it. He was in ninth grade. I was a senior. I'm just saying. <laughs> and there might be a connection in NBC. Yes. Possibly. We may know them. Just <laughs> we a little bit. Will, we will, I would love to have a Maroon 5 song in All season right. two. All right. Well, we've talked a lot about the past. Yes. Um, a lot of people that listen to this podcast, what they really want is advice, right? A lot of young people listen to this, starting out their careers. Um, and you both have had very, very varied careers. Um, and I think your advice would be quite meaningful to them. Typically, I ask people advice for their 25-year-old self. I'm going to give you both the pass to go all the way back to 15 if you want. Well, you know, but we can keep it at 25 because it's more professional. Is this self-advice or is this advice to no, others? It's, it's advice to your younger self. You know, what would you? Okay, Austin, I think with you, it's very specific because you had sold your first show at 26. So if you could go back to 26-year-old Austin in this case and give advice, what, what would you tell him? Uh, um, take better stomach medicine. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> um, I, I would I tell you can beat that. I would tell him to get into therapy earlier. Uh, oh boy! <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I would. I, I guess the advice would be: first of all, that show was such a tricky, spe specific thing. I would say, let's stick to our guns of what we want that show to be. It was such a hard challenge because they were giving me thirteen episodes on the air, so young. How do you say no to that? But at the same time, like maybe really taking a step back before we got into that particular project and said and saying to them fighting harder for the original version and vision because I think, but that's not really apt advice for people now. I just feel like it's so hard, doing a TV show on its own is so hard that when you completely change the DNA of it on the fly, it's just a whole other set of challenges. And ultimately, I'm proud of a bunch of episodes we did of that show, but it wasn't the thing that I initially set out to do. Mm -hmm. do, do you wish you would have had a stronger lead blocker who could have advocated for you? I think certainly certain people along the way, certainly a, another, I mean, I loved the, my co-showrunner though, he, year one, Jeff Richmond, who's been on Modern Family for the last 10 years, he's been great. So I can't fault him. I think it was just, we were in a very particular, there were a particular set of challenges to that project. I think I would tell my younger self, uh, I sold a lot of projects over the years because uh, I thought they were a big idea. And I thought that they were something I could sell. Or I'd sell a project because we were able to get a big star involved. And I think that 
some of the time with those, there's a reason why it didn't get made or got onto the air. And I think there was something about it that either felt familiar or that felt like we were aiming for something rather than being its own unique thing. So I think one piece of advice that I tell young writers and that I would tell myself is always try to write the stuff that's personal to you and always try to write the stuff that only you can tell. I think there've many there've been many movies and TV shows I've sold over the years that a lot of other writers in town could have done just as well if not better on in writing that script. So try and I think that the things that I have done that have been the most personal and the most specific to me have been the ones that have gotten the most response. Yeah. And so I think that that's my biggest piece of writing advice to young writers beyond um, don't get defensive when people give you notes and learn to take in all the criticism you can and be open to new ideas as long as this is this is the whole struggle of how do you stay open to new ideas and not change the thing away from what it is and that's a whole other podcast we could talk about about navigating the executive world but I think that certainly a piece of advice for writers and for myself is just always try to think about don't always be chasing the thing and don't always be playing so much compare and despair and don't be thinking about what it is that you think they want, write the thing that you want to write. Well, and in that also, I'm hearing you have to go out and live. You know, I think a lot of people, yeah. especially in this era, can just hide behind whatever, stay inside all day. If you have no experiences to draw from, how can you really write yeah. about characters and life? And I mean, this show is so... Every aspect of this show has to do with something from my life. And it, whether it ties into the musical stuff that I've been doing for 10 years and having a musical on Broadway and the training of that um, really got me to the place to understand how music should function in a show. The family story is literally every story we do in the family is what happened in my family and what happened with my father. The other thing that I've always felt like I like and can do pretty well is romantic comedy. So this show has those elements and those things are like, that's... All the, I did a Facebook post on whatever the night we premiered, which was like Malcolm Gladwell's whole 10,000 hours thing. Like my 10,000 hours have begat 10,000 hours have begat 10,000 hours. And this show is a confluence of all those things I've worked on over the years. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the thing that felt the most inherently me is the thing that people responded to. I love that. What about you, Cara? I mean, when you were, I you know knew you well all these years. I remember yeah. when you started out, not to sort of lead your answer here, but... Mm -hmm. You were doing a lot of MTV dating shows. Yes. Very different than what you're doing today. It's true. Not better, not worse, but very different. Yeah. I mean, I think that is part of my, my advice would be twofold. The first thing it speaks to that, which is I think, you know, people sort of have a sense of I want to do this and there's only one path to get there. And I think my path was very um, unusual. And I think you have to be open to opportunities and different experiences when they show up, even if it's not necessarily what you thought. I ended up doing MTV dating shows because I was working for a uh, TV agent who was in the world of scripted television, which I work in now, which I liked, but there was no opportunity there at that moment. And someone came to me and said, there are jobs on the reality side where you could be you know, producing and be in the field and be off of an assistance desk, but you have to learn how to do it really fast and there's no guarantees and it's freelance. And I was like, mm, that sounds like something I was not expecting, but also like it could be a good opportunity. And I don't want to be an assistant anymore. And I feel like I'm going to bet on myself and think I can figure it out. So I'm going to take that chance. And I ended up doing that for a couple of years. And it was a great experience. It wasn't necessarily the thing that I thought I was going to do, but it has only helped me. Um, but it was kind of a left turn. And I would say be open to those opportunities because I think it made me more comfortable on set. It made me a better producer. I was more comfortable in the edit bay. These are things that like 
you know, 15 years later, I'm still using in my career, that was a completely unpredictable opportunity. So the first thing I would say is be open to that. Um, And the second thing I would say is look for great mentors, because I didn't really have one that early in my career. Only later did I really find those relationships. Lisa Katz, who's the co-president at NBC and also has been very involved in Zoe's and is a huge advocate of the show has been an incredible mentor to me. And I think finding those people in the business that you really trust and you can ask advice and you can, you know, um, really trust them to uh, talk through like your future plans and how to strategize. It's so important. And I think women especially, um, you know, sometimes feel challenged by finding other women who are in positions of power and saying like, hey, can you help me? Or, you know, are you interested in having a mentor relationship to me? But I always say yes when people ask me that because I think it's so important. So I would just say I know it sounds weird to like email someone or call them or, you know, someone you work with and say, hey, like, can I some pick your brain or ask you for advice sometimes? But those relationships can become incredibly valuable and important. So I would advocate for that. I think it's great advice. I think it's a beautiful show. And I love that. Such I get... a good show. It's all Cara. It's all Austin. I love that. Please I'm watch it. It's so special. Able to call both of you guys old friends. Yes. Definitely. Yes, which is so fun that we were able to do this all together. You got it. And yes, Billy Bud, the comedy I want. <laughs> you and I can discuss it because clearly Cara's not interested. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about it when you're ready to finish. Fair. So there you have it. The true story of Zoe's extraordinary playlist. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thank you as well to my guests, Cara DeLaverson and Austin Winsberg, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind. <laughs>